Now, I'm going to be in a lot of Scripture passages this morning, so I've got to deal with something right away. If you're not a page-turner, it's all right. It's all good. I'm going to read most of what we've been in, so you don't have to feel like you've got to keep up with your neighbor who can turn to Isaiah 53 with one flip. Boom, there. How do they do that? I don't even know. You don't have to do that. If you want to, you're welcome to, but if you just want to hear me read, we're going to be in a lot of different passages uh, today, and uh, it'll, it's going to be exciting to see how the Word of God unfolds the ministry of Christ, uh, but I'm uh, sort of apologizing in advance. We're going to be all over the Scripture a little bit today. Now, I don't know if you remember this. Back in 2001, uh, the entire country really was captivated by the fact that a new product was about to be released. In a minute, I'll tell you what it is. It was sort of shrouded in mystery for months. In fact, business and technology leaders had, had, had looked at it before it had been released, and they thought it was going to revolutionize the way life is lived, especially in cities. One CEO said this, it's going to be the first product in the history of the world to reach a billion dollars in sales. I should say the fastest product in the history of the world to reach a billion dollars in sales. Then on national television, the product was unveiled. You remember, what is it? The Segway Human Transporter. You remember that? Barely. So if you don't remember it, it was a two-wheeled scooter sort of deal. It had onboard computers that kept it from falling over. You'd stand on the thing. It was powered uh, by electric motors with rechargeable batteries. You'd just lean forward, and the thing would scoot forward. You'd lean backward, you'd go backward, and you could, you could steer it by just twisting one of the handles. And uh, the technology in the thing was cutting edge. I mean, there was, the technology in it was mind-blowing. Uh, the, the Segway worked marvelously well. Very well built. In fact, the people who used it said it was fun and easy to operate. It was mobile. It was quick. It was dependable. It could go places that cars and motorcycles couldn't, like in a park or a, a bike path. Uh, people who worked in very large facilities could use it to get around very easily. It provided mobility for those who had limited physical mobility. I mean, it really had everything, didn't it? Here's one thing that they didn't anticipate. Nobody really wanted to buy one. <laughs> so when they unveiled it on national TV, basically if you were watching it, and I happened to be watching that day, they unveiled it and everybody went, oh, it's a scooter. <laughs> Whatever. So what happened was the company had planned when it was released that they would sell 10,000 Segways a week after two years, they had sold 6,000. Yeah, it's bad news. It really became the punchline of business jokes everywhere. So they answered all, they had all the right answers, I should say, for all the wrong questions. Does it work? Yes. Is it reliable? Yes. Does it do what it's designed to do? Yes. Is it technologically advanced? Yes. Does anybody want one? No. You know, honestly, when we think about a relationship with God, this, this becomes kind of important because, frankly, a lot of times we have, uh, or are seeking anyway, to have all the right answers to all the wrong questions. Will God heal? Will God provide? Is God near? Does God hear me? I mean, these are all I mean, these are really, really important questions that, in fact, we should be asking. If we're walking with Christ, we would necessarily want to be asking these questions and grappling with these questions. 
But I think what we're going to discover today in Ephesians chapter 1 is when we look at what God has been doing throughout all of history, His plan throughout all of history, that these other questions only have any significance whatsoever if we understand the primary thing we ought to be asking. And here's the question we ought to be asking that I want us to ask this morning. Not what is, uh, will God provide? Will God be near? Does He hear? The, the question we need to be asking is this, what is God doing? What is God doing? Look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 9. God is making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ. God is what? Verse 9, making known. Does God want this to be something that is unknown? Absolutely not. God wants us to know what He is up to. God is keenly interested in that we would be aware of and understand what He is doing. And when He says He is making known to us the mystery of His will, it just simply means He is revealing to us that something that previously He had not made known to us. Mystery here does not mean there is some code to be unlocked. There is some secret uh, formula for understanding the purpose and uh, will of God. Mystery just simply means in times past, He had not made this known, and now you know it fully. God is making forth His purpose. He's setting forth to us His purpose. So what is God doing? First thing, He is redeeming in Christ. Look back at verse 7 of Ephesians chapter 1. In Him, that is Jesus, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. What is God doing? He is redeeming in Christ. In fact, Jesus is the culmination of the entire plan of God throughout all of eternity. Jesus is the culmination of the entire plan of God throughout all of eternity. His life and His purpose is that which achieves everything God has been planning on doing. In Luke chapter 4, we find out uh, a little something about this from Jesus Himself. And this is what it says in Luke chapter uh, 4, beginning in verse 16. Jesus came to Nazareth, that's where He had been brought up. And as was His custom, He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and He stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set liberty to those who are oppressed. In fact, verse 19 to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Verse 20, and he rolled up the scroll, he gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. And the eyes of the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So Jesus looks back to Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 2. And he reads a prophecy that says he will come and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he said that prophecy not only found its fulfillment in Christ, it found its culmination in Christ. That prophecy was telling us this is what God is doing. He wants to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He wants to proclaim uh, the releasing of the captives, freedom for all who would find him. 
Jesus is saying, this is what God's plan is meeting up to. It's me. Don't have time to get into it. The people didn't respond well. They felt that was a little arrogant, and they tried to throw him off a cliff. What does it mean to experience the year of the Lord's favor? Isaiah 59 tells us a little bit about this. Isaiah 59, beginning in verse 14. Listen to what God had to say to the people of Israel in Isaiah 59. First, the bad news. Justice is turned back. Righteousness stands far away. Truth has stumbled into public squares and uprightness can't enter. Truth is lacking and he who departs from evil makes himself prey. He who departs from evil, it says, makes himself a victim. The Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. So what should he do? Verse 16 of Isaiah 59, he saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. There's no one to intercede, and God said, my own arm will have to bring righteousness. The strength of my own arm will have to intercede. And how did God do that? Jesus, His own arm comes and intercedes for us. His own arm in Christ comes and makes a way that we might receive righteousness. He, there was no man. He said, there's no one. I'll send Christ to achieve it. I'll send Christ to fulfill it. Do you think Jesus was aware of this? Of course He was. In the Gospel of John 19, verse 28, this is Jesus hanging on the cross. Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill Scripture, I thirst. And a jar of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to His mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, He said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. When Jesus is saying it is finished, you understand, of course, he's not merely saying dying on the cross is done. He's not merely saying the physical torture is over. What is he saying? For all of eternity, my Father has sought one purpose, the redemption of mankind in Christ, and it is finished. It may sound like a cry of despair. It is a cry of victory. That for all of human history, God says, oh, I'll redeem, don't worry, I got this. And then Jesus on the cross, it's an out of the park, walk off the bag, home run. It is finished, redemption is done. What is God doing? He is redeeming in Christ, and Christ on the cross was aware of it and understood it. The story of Scripture from beginning to end The story of God's history from Genesis to Revelation, the plan of God from Genesis to Revelation is in Christ. In Genesis 3.15, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. He says to the serpent, you're going to lose, bud, and you're going to lose bad. And Jesus on the cross says, it's finished, his head is crushed. What is God doing? He is redeeming us 
in Christ. And you may be wondering, what does that have to do with me? Well, it's important to keep in mind that God is never late. I mean, never. He's never been late for anything. He's also never early, you may have noticed. I've taken it up with him. He just refuses to alter his schedule for my account. So when when God is ready and the moment is precise, everything will be brought into Christ. Everything will be made new and united into Christ. It's all for Christ. When time is ready, when the fullness of all things is achieved, everything will be united in Christ. That's how God works. He's not, he's not going to do it a moment earlier and not a moment later. As we saw in Christ on the cross, He showed up on the cross at the precise moment that God intended. In fact, Paul described it this way in Galatians 4.4. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, you're no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. At the fullness of time, Christ died on the cross. At the fullness of time, He provided the means through Christ for us to be called sons. At the exact moment necessary, He provided the way for us to receive the Holy Spirit. And this is all what God had predicted back in Isaiah. This is, none of this is new uh, developments for God. This is what He said back in Isaiah 59, 21. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord, my spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart from you or come out of your mouth. You and your offspring will have my spirit. Your children's children will have my words from this time forevermore. God has planned and been planning for us to receive redemption in Christ and for us to receive His Spirit. This has always been the plan. There's actually more to it, if you'll bear with me. If you won't bear with me, I'm going to do it anyway, so I don't know what to tell you. Galatians 3.27 First of all, God redeems us when the fullness of the time Christ dies on the cross. Secondly, God gives us His Spirit. Thirdly, Galatians 3.27, for as, many of you as, for as many of you as were baptized in Christ have put on Christ. He says, listen, not only do you receive the Spirit, not only do you receive redemption, the forgiveness of sins, but you wear Christ as you wear a garment. When people see you now, it's Christ. When God sees you now, it's Christ. You wear, it as a, wear Him as a garment. He is, we are not only uh, connected with Him spiritually, we are in Him. We, we wear Him as our righteousness. We wear Him as our wholeness. We put on Christ, and everything that Christ is, we wear. Everything that Christ is, we have become in Him. So you may be wondering, if we're wearing Christ, what does that mean we're wearing? Well, let me put it this way. If we're wearing Christ, we wear what He wears. Does that sound good? 
Say, well, if it's in the Bible, I see you working. Okay. Isaiah 59, 17. Did I tell you we're going to flip, be going around a lot? All right. Back to Isaiah 59. We were there earlier. I'm going to start in verse 16. God saw that there was no man. He wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation. His righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. Who put on the breastplate? His own arm, the Redeemer. Who put on the helmet of salvation? His own arm, the Redeemer. He put on garments of vengeance to take out vengeance on uh, the enemies of God. Jesus is the one who says he wears the breastplate of righteousness. Why would Jesus, why would the arm of God, God's salvation, wear the breastplate of righteousness? Because that's who he is. He is righteousness. Why would he wear the helmet of salvation? He is the one who brings righteousness. And if we think Paul wasn't thinking of Isaiah 59 when he penned Ephesians chapter 6, I think we're missing something. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having all done, uh, having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore having fastened the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet put on the readiness given by the gospel. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith. Take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Let me put it this way to simplify it. How do you put on the whole armor of God? You're putting on Christ. We're putting on the one who already wears it. We're wearing the garment that is Christ Himself. We're wearing the garment that is our righteousness. We're not putting on a garment as an act of righteousness. Look at Ephesians 6.10. Finally, be strong. See, most of us want to stop there. All right. Time to gird my spiritual loins. Got to get strong so Jesus will like me more. What does it say? Be strong how? In the Lord. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of whose might? His might. Whose armor are you wearing? His armor. He's not saying, I want you to gin up righteousness so that you get the, ba- the breastplate of righteousness uh, uh, badge. I don't want you to, oh, I've got to share the gospel with three of my friends so that way I can put on the gospel shoes. So we take something which is a message of grace and we turn it into a message of works. How about this? Jesus does it all. I'll just wear the Jesus coat. I'll wear the breastplate of righteousness because he is righteous. I'll wear the helmet of salvation because he saved me. I will stand strong, not because I'm strong, but because he is strong. We put on the armor of God, that is, we put on Jesus For all of time in history, God's plan, what is God doing, what is He up to, is for us to wear Christ, to be in Christ, to stand in Christ. The mystery here is we thought all along what God was up to was telling us to be good. 
This is the mystery. For all of human history, we have convinced ourselves the message of God is please be more good or gooder or not as naughty. I mean, at this point, God is just saying, I mean, less naughty would be fine. I'll just go with that. He's not. It's not the message. The message is not do good. It's not be good. It's not stop being bad. The message is be in Christ. That's the message. All of human history, from eternity past to eternity future, I want you in Christ. I want you to wear Christ. I want you to have His righteousness and His salvation and His strength. God wants us to put on the robe of Christ, stand in His righteousness with His shiny breastplate and helmet and sword, and we go, what did I do? And then you look down at your feet, and what's under your foot? A dead snake. Because when we're in Christ, we are victorious in Christ. He's dead. It's done. It's over. What is God doing? He is redeeming us in Christ. Now, that's not the end of this mystery or what God is revealing here. If you'll look back at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10. So the end of this mystery, or what he's making known to us, the purpose of God is not merely for us to be in Christ. Really, that's just a part of the story. The rest of this is verse 10. He set uh, uh, this purpose forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. What is God doing? First of all, he's redeeming in Christ, and finally, he is redeeming, listen, for Christ. His purpose is to unite all things together in Jesus, both that which is in heaven, the throne room of God, as well as that which is on earth, which must be restored. This is really, really important for us to understand. The purpose here is not to give us Jesus. The plan is not to give us Jesus. What's the plan? To give us to Jesus. This is going to make some of you mad. I'm going to say it anyway. Your salvation is not about you. Your salvation is not primarily for your benefit. Your salvation is primarily about Jesus, and your salvation is primarily for His benefit. Notice in Ephesians 1.10, it didn't say to unite all things in Him, or I should say unite all things in me in Christ, or in you in Christ. It's in who? In Jesus in Christ, all things heaven on earth. Your salvation, our salvation is not primarily about us. The benefits are not primarily for us. The, the point of our salvation is primarily Christ, with the benefits primarily being experienced by Christ Himself. It's only in understanding that this is the way salvation was designed from the beginning of time that we would even be moved at all to live for Christ if we are in Him. If my salvation is primarily for my benefit, then the only thing I will care about my salvation is my conversion. Did you hear what I said? If salvation is primarily for my benefit, the only thing I'm really worried about in, in the sense of my salvation is, am I saved? If salvation, though, is primarily, as the Bible teaches us, for Christ's benefit, 
Conversion is just one part of the story of getting him benefited, isn't it? Do I want to get saved? Yeah, because it's good to be saved. Thumbs up for that. Christ is benefited and, and glorified in our being saved. But he also receives benefit and glory as we live for him each and every day of this life. But then again, like I say, if, if Christ dying on the cross and bringing forgiveness of sin is just basically to give me a better day, then what does that matter? As long as I'm saved and getting into heaven, what, what else matters? But as it turns out, our salvation and the work God has been doing from the beginning of time is for Christ. Philippians 3.17 says this, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even walk with, even with tears, excuse me, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with mindset on earthly things. Verse 20 of Philippians 3. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Our home is not here. Our home is heaven. We have a citizenship in that place, which is more significant than our citizenship in this place. And who is in charge there? Christ. Who is heaven designed for? What is glory designed for? Christ. Our heart is set on living for Christ when our heart is set on our citizenship there and not primarily here. Our home is in heaven, as should our heart be, and that should move us to live in a way that Christ would call us to live. Peter said it this way in 1 Peter 2.9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners... It's coming to me. Aliens and strangers. I couldn't get the words were escaping. And if you're reading the NAV and other translations, it says sojourners, it has what? Aliens and strangers. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners, aliens and strangers, and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. He's saying here, as his people, we are his possession and we proclaim his excellencies by living our life in a manner consistent with who he is. We live as sojourners, or I should say this, we live as foreigners in this place when we live not according to the rules of this place, but we live according to our allegiance to the king of that place. We are redeemed for Christ, and we're called to live for Christ because we are his. And our salvation is for His benefit. You know, a common question a lot of us ask is this question. Maybe you've asked this before. Maybe you've asked it today. What is God's will for me? What is God's will? Should I select the Dutch Bros coffee card or the Starbucks coffee card at the info kiosk? I mean, these are choices. God, show me your will. Give me a quiver in my liver when I go to make that decision. 
what is God's will? And usually we're thinking in the Eastern, what's God's will for me? That's a fair question, but it's not the question the Bible generally answers. Generally, when the Bible asks, what is God's will? He's saying, what is God's will for me in Christ? What is God's will for me in Christ, given the fact, think about it this way, that God has been planning His will for me in Christ literally forever? What is, God to do? what is God doing? He is redeeming in Christ, and now He is redeeming for Christ. And as He works in our, li- in our lives today for Christ, He is primarily working out His will in us for Christ. God's plan for all of time is for Christ. God's plan for all of time is to redeem for Jesus, for Christ, Is our plan for Christ? I mean, like even for this afternoon? I mean, literally what God's been doing forever. I'm going to redeem in Christ, going to redeem for Christ. The Apostle Paul would call us in the midst of that not to be weighed down with a sense of obligation, but to be lifted up to say, my life can be plugged into something so much bigger than whatever I thought my life was about. All right, so uh, back to the beginning. We talked about the Segway human transporter. Wrong questions were answered. The right question should have been, will anyone buy it? Same thing with us as Christians. We ask a lot of questions about what God is doing and what He is doing in the world around us, and our head get wrapped around a lot of different challenges we face, and, and rightly so. But the first question we must address from the Scripture is, what is God What is He doing? What is He up to? God's not made His purpose impossible to know. He hasn't hidden it from us. We know what God is doing, and we know why He is doing it. God is redeeming for Himself a people in Christ, and God is redeeming a people for Christ. He's redeeming for Himself a people in and for Christ. Thankfully, God's desire is to bring glory to Himself through you in Christ. God is moved and He is motivated to see Christ working in each and every one of us. God is is excited to see what He's going to do in and through each and every one of us on behalf of and for the benefit of Jesus Christ Himself. This would mean that God is most glorified in us when what moves and motivates Him also moves and motivates us. So another way of saying this, and a writer put it this way, I think it's a a nice way of encapsulating this thought, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. I'll say that again if you missed it. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. That is to say, if all of God's work and of all of His plan, through all of His history, finds its end in Jesus Christ Himself, then God is most lifted up in us and most glorified in us when our work, when our plans, when our life finds its end in Jesus Christ Himself. 
I don't know if you realize this or not, this is in fact great news for us as Christians. Let me explain. We can finally stop worrying about stuff that routinely captures our attention but doesn't bring the most glory to God. For example, many of us as Christians feel like we have a lot of pressure on us to ace the Christian life. Like the Christian life is one long test to figure out if we measure up or not. Do we read the Bible enough? Do we pray enough? Are we kind enough? Are we dedicated enough? Do we sin too much? The list goes on and on and on. We got all these things. Got to get all my ducks in a row because the Christian life is one long test. When I do it right, things go well. When I do it poorly, things don't go well. I want to be a good Christian. Oh, it's exhausting. I get exhausted just saying it. Let you know, I want to let you in on a little secret. I've been doing the Christian thing for a little bit. The rules are going to change on you. So this is how it works. You're going to work your tail off, figure out how to pray enough, whatever that means for you. I mean, if you want to go Bible on it, it's praying every moment of every day, waking or sleeping, but whatever. Uh, You work your tail off, so you figure out how to pray enough, whatever that is. Then you go and hear some sermon or you read an article... He says, good, you pray a lot, but of course you realize you're praying for all the wrong things. That's why God's not hearing you. All right, I've got to fix that. Okay, now I'm going to pray enough, and I'm going to pray for all the right things, whatever that is. I think it means you don't get to pray for you anymore. So you read another book, and it says, no, 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 no. Be still and know that I am God. The reason God's not hearing you is you're filling his throne room with idle words. You need to just sit and be quiet. You see what I mean? I mean, it's a moving target. How is this supposed to work if every time I try and figure out the Christian life, I feel like the target moves on me? I can't keep up with God's expectations. I mean, it's impossible. Have you ever felt that way? Is it just me? It's going to be awkward if it's just me. I'm used to awkward. God is Christ-focused and redemption-focused. What part do we play if God is redemption-focused and Christ-focused? What's our job there? To be saved, to be redeemed. Our job is to be redeemed. We work so hard and try to manage all of God's expectations. That's the job of the Redeemer, is to manage God's expectations. Did you hear what I said? Whose job is it to manage God's expectation? Is it the redeemed? It's the redeemer. He's really, really good at it. Like, perfect. So why are we messing with it? Got to figure out what God wants. I'll tell you what God wants. He'll take Jesus' work. Our job in that is to be redeemed. Our job is to let the redeemer do his job to save us. And then, I hate to say, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this in church, enjoy the Redeemer. We aren't in control. We can't manage our sin. We can't manage our Christian life. We certainly can't keep up with God's expectations. Are you kidding me? I can't even keep up with my kids' expectations. But we can trust Jesus, and we can enjoy being redeemed. When it comes to our sin as Christians, we have to realize this. Sin cannot make you unrighteous. 
Sin can't make you shameful. Sin can't make you dirty. In our ongoing struggle with sin every, each and every day, and it's going to be a struggle with sin, I can tell you exactly when it's going to end. We're going to have a funeral for you. It'll be awesome. And your struggle with sin will be over. But our ongoing struggle with sin reveals that we're, that we're deceived, that we, we've missed it. We think we can get joy from sin that only comes from Christ. It means we don't overcome sin by simply not doing it anymore. We overcome sin when God works us in us in such a powerful way that we find Christ more enjoyable. All right, we need to consider, I think, our life a little bit. Think about it. Is our life in Christ marked with enjoyment of Him and rest? Think about your life in Christ. Is it marked, characterized by enjoyment and rest? Are we striving to enter His rest, as the author of Hebrews says? Or is your Christian life marked with trying to gain God's approval? There's a big difference between those two things, a living a life in Christ in rest or living a life seeking God's approval. God does not need us to seek His approval. He doesn't need it. That's the Redeemer's job, is to get the approval. It's not the job of the redeemed. God's desire for us is a life of rest in Christ and for Christ, where we have the assurance of faith that Christ saved me, even one like me. What is God doing? He's redeeming in Christ and for Christ. My prayer is we would find rest in that and hope and joy to live our days seeing His victory worked out.